I love Senior Sunday. I love Graduation Sunday. I love beginning to celebrate um, all the things that are going on in our student ministry. And I can't think of a better day to do it than today. Um, if I could add a um, one day to the church calendar, it would be what's celebrated today. And you know, church calendar is something that maybe you growing up in Baptist churches or Protestant churches are unfamiliar with. But we, you know Christmas, you know Easter. Uh, maybe you've heard of Epiphany, right? Epiphany happens, you know, January 6th, that some people leave their Christmas tree up till Epiphany. Um, most of you know Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. But how many of you knew, or it's not really a holiday, but I'm trying to get behind it. Um, today is an important day in the Christian church. If I could add a day, I would call it Doubting Thomas Sunday. Because if you go read the Gospel of John, it was today, a week after Easter, where Thomas had his encounter with Jesus. For those of you who don't know, on, on Easter Sunday, the risen Jesus appeared to the, to the disciples, but one of them was missing. Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, um, I don't, I'm not going to believe unless I put my fingers in, in, in the holes in his hand. I'm not going to believe uh, that he rose from the dead. Um, and then the Bible says eight days later, he was with the disciples praying and Jesus appeared to them. Now thinking to yourself, eight days, shouldn't that be tomorrow? Shouldn't tomorrow be down Thomas Sunday? And the answer is no. Uh, the reason why the answer is no is because the ancient Greeks and Romans and Jews counted days like rental car companies, not like cruise ships, okay? So if you leave on a cruise Friday night and you come back Sunday uh, on a cruise, that's a two-day cruise. But if you rent a car on Friday and you take it back on Sunday, they charge you for three days, right? They charge, it's called inclusive counting, <clears throat> Okay. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. Well, eight days means Sunday to Sunday. The Sunday after Easter, Thomas is sitting and praying and wondering and seeking, and, and the risen Jesus shows up. I love it. I love that, that picture as a powerful example of what the church is supposed to be about, giving room for people to ask their questions and get the answers they need. You see, Christianity is an evidence-giving religion. Um, sometimes we've been so easy to quash people's faith and chase people out of the church when people ask good questions. And then we say things, oh, you just gotta have faith. Yes, you have to have faith, but faith is not the opposite of answers. Christianity, as often as they can, give all the evidence that we can give. Every time Jesus, uh, we, early Christians stood up and said, Jesus is alive, they pointed to the evidence, the empty tomb. And sometimes Doubting Thomas gets a bad rap because Thomas, um, Thomas is the one who had an honest question he needed a real answer to, and when he got it, it was he who gave the first true Christian confession of faith. In, in John 20, 28, he says first and foremost, he calls, he calls Jesus my Lord and my God. He's the first one to figure it out that this risen Jesus, if, Jesus, if this really happened, that means he's more than just the Messiah. This Messiah is God himself. So let's give Thomas some credit. He knew the question needed answers. He sought those answers and he got the answer. And so um, we, I love the idea of, of celebrating seniors as we launch them into the world, uh, talking about the fact that we are supposed to be seeking and serving a risen savior. And how can we learn to do that? We're calling this series The Clash or The Culture Clash because we live in an age where, um, where it seems like truth is under attack, right? And, and many people don't feel comfortable seeking, and seeking the truth within church. They don't know how to get the answers they need and they end up wandering off to find other places that can give them meaning and answers to life's ultimate questions. 
And so I thought today, is, uh, um, as, I was, as I was thinking, what, can we, what message can I give our seniors about, what, about how to tackle the world going forward? But also, how can, what message can I give all of us as we seek to, to be believers in, in a culture that's hostile to truth? What is the message that we can, uh, for us, to help us uh, live that out? Um, the theme verse that Ryan and I both, Ryan at Central and, and me here, are going are gonna, to are be talking about is rooted in, in 2 Timothy 1, where S- Timothy uh, is told by an elder Paul, Paul looking to one of his people he's been mentoring, he says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Um, he's trying to say, look, here is how you do it. Um, next week, we're going to have an interview. Uh, Pastor Ryan went up to Dallas and interviewed uh, Jim Dennison. And if you know Jim Dennison, he's a, he's a pastor, he's a professor, he's a cultural critic, and he, uh, he's a Christian who analyzes the culture very well. And, he, and we're going to show that interview next week. Um, but today, as, as we begin this series, I'll have a brief clip of that video, sort of to whet your appetite and to set the stage for what we're talking about today. If we spend any time together at all, you know that one of my favorite people is Dr. Jim Dennison. Dr. Dennison has been used in profound ways across our country and beyond talking about what's happening in our culture right now. He is known as a pastor, as a philosopher, as a professor. That's how I knew you first, Dr. Dennison. Uh, a cultural apologist and the, uh, the director of Dennison Ministries that continues just to have farther and farther reach author of 30 books, and just welcome to this time together. Thank you for taking it. My honor to do this with you today, Pastor. I'm really delighted to have this conversation. So grateful for you and for who you are and what you are and what your ministry is doing. Man, thank you for those kind words. Well, we look around us, Dr. Dennison, and it's, it's, it's just sort of what in the world's going on in this cultural moment, right? You can almost feel the shift. And You just wrote a book called The Coming Tsunami, and uh, kind of, I think you're sensing the same thing what, what is it about this moment that's making so many of us feel as though this is different? Yeah, I think it's on two levels. First of all, I think we're feeling a rising tide of animosity to the gospel that we haven't seen in American history, literally in American history. I'm not saying that we're in communist China. I'm not saying we're in North Korea. I've been to communist China. I've been to the Muslim world. I know what some of our fellow sisters and brothers are facing. I'm not saying that, but we've never seen this before. We've not seen a moment when Christians, Christ followers, are considered homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and dangerous. We've not seen acts like the Equality Act that would literally put me in jail if it became law, and we had a staff member that we dismissed for LGBTQ uh, issues, and they filed a lawsuit, and a judge issues an injunction, and if we don't obey the injunction, I go to jail. We haven't seen a moment like that. We haven't seen a time where a religious exemption accountability project would threaten $4 billion in federal aid to Christian colleges and universities. So there really is a rising tide of animosity we just haven't seen. Then inside the church, I think we're feeling it ourselves. We're seeing it in our families. We're seeing it in our kids. We're seeing uh, this rising tide of irreligion in younger generations. Uh, There was a survey by Gallup recently. The percentage of Americans even connected to a church, synagogue, or mosque is now below 50% for the first time in American history. So inside the church, outside the church, we feel like we're in a moment we haven't been in before. And I really think that's true. Yeah. For the the 20-somethings who are watching this and younger, Mm -hmm. uh, facing tremendous pressure, uh, maybe guilt in, in hearing that truth is so different. And most of our neighbors, right, statistically now would say that your truth is your truth. It doesn't necessarily 
you know, relate to what I think is true. How do we get here? Can we just talk a little bit about how, how we found ourselves in this, this uh, moment specifically related to truth? Absolutely. And so we can either go back to the seminar you and I had right. and doctoral work can take all day to yeah. answer that question. It was wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Or we'll do it in about two minutes. Okay. You probably wish I'd done it that way, but <laughs> nonetheless. So in the Middle Ages, you've got this uh, Catholic church that really is dominant over culture and defining truth. You know, that's what the church teaches it to be. Then this Reformation comes along. And now we're threatening all of that. Is the church really the sole conservator of truth? Well, Rene Descartes wants to defend the church against the Reformation. So he gets this mathematical idea that I think, therefore I am, and I am what thinking is, and truth is known through the mind, rationalism. The reaction is empiricism in Great Britain with Locke, uh, Barclay, Hume. Truth is believing. Truth is seeing. Seeing is believing. Well, there's a guy that puts that together named Immanuel Kant, who says truth is how your mind interprets your senses. Sounds simple to you and me, but people didn't think that way before Immanuel Kant, 17th, 18th century. This idea that truth is how I experience the world, what we now know postmodernism, has swept Europe. It turned truth into relative truth. It turned the Bible into a diary of religious experience. It says you have your truth, I have my truth. There can be no such thing as objective truth. We don't get that in the United States really till after World War II. We start sending our scholars to Europe, bringing their scholars over here. The world gets smaller. And over time, people that have never heard of Immanuel Kant, never heard of Rene Descartes, nonetheless believe that my mind interprets my senses, your mind isn't mine, your senses are not mine. So there can be no such thing as objective truth by definition. And to claim otherwise is to be intolerant and bigoted and prejudiced and narrow-minded in this post-truth culture. Right. And, and a lot of people watching this are saying, yes, that's, that's what I hear all the time. And, or they're saying, what's wrong with this? Mm -hmm. So if, if we're having a, an intelligent conversation with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker or a classmate and, and they say this, mm -hmm. It's a very difficult, sort of a moving target, right, to have a conversation because if you say, well, I just believe in absolute truth, they just give you this, you know, silly look. That's just your truth. Right. You know? So, so how, how can we have an intelligent and kind conversation with people who would disagree? How can we compel them to know? I think it's on three levels. On the logical level, first of all, if they're willing to have a conversation on that level, to say there is no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim. Right. No such thing as absolute truth and we're sure of it. So it doesn't work logically. It doesn't work practically. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth? Just got back from Israel. We always go to Yad Vashem, that Holocaust museum. And you can't go through it without breaking your heart, breaking for six million Jews, a quarter of whom were children. Well, is that just Hitler's truth? Is the invasion of Ukraine just Putin's truth? It doesn't work practically. But then ultimately, I think we get to a relational answer to the question. If I can show you the relevance of my truth in my life, the transforming difference Jesus makes in my life, you'll be attracted to my truth to be your truth, and that's how you'll meet the truth. In many ways, we're back to the first century. Early Christians lived in a world that had this same confusion of truth, as you know. You had Platonists and Aristotelians and Stoics and Cynics and uh, skeptics and uh, worshipers of Zeus and Apollo and emperor worship, all that. Well, in that world, abandoning babies was what you did with an unwanted baby. They couldn't make that illegal, so they went out and rescued the babies. They couldn't make slavery illegal in the first century, so they bought the slaves and set them free. And over time, Christians demonstrated the relevance of their truth in their lives, and the world was attracted to that. And they made their truth their truth, and that's how they met the truth. And I think that's what we do today. 
Right. It starts with me. Yes, and, and on a grand scale, that's the kind of the heartbeat of our church is grace-filled truth. Say, you know what? As much as we can love people, that's going to win us the right to have an audience right. and to, to have that second conversation maybe where we might otherwise be written off. That's right. You and, earn the right to be right. heard. And on yeah. a personal level, that works the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, to say at least so and so, you know, we may not agree, mm -hmm. but I'll tell you what. They, they really do love other people well, and maybe I need to look into this because ultimately we can look at the fruit of truth, right? And, uh, and, and that's what people want. Yeah. They want community. They want relationship. They want what is found only in the Spirit of Christ, only in the family of God. It's one of the reasons, don't mean to sound patronizing, but one of the reasons I love your ministry in your church so much is every time you've had me down there, I've just sensed the Spirit of Jesus here. There's a community. There's a family. There's something I would want. That's how I came to faith in Christ. My father fought in the Second World War, never went to church again. So I grew up in a loving home in Houston, no spiritual life, all my dad's questions. Got invited to church at the age of 15, began seeing in these other people something I didn't have. And September 9, 1973, 15 years of age, going to Sharpstown High School, I asked my Sunday school teacher how I could have what they had. And that's, she led me to faith in Christ. Wow. Janet changed my life that one day, transformed everything. It was because I was attracted to their truth to make it my truth. So, The Coming Tsunami, brand new book. I am uh, I'm hopeful that everyone in our congregation will read this book, and everybody I know, I'm telling about it. It's just a fantastic book. Thank you for that, and uh, grateful for it. Uh, the Denison Forum is a place where uh, you'd already up to half a million subscribers yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, more than 400,000 subscribers, 2.9 million in total by the well, time you do the social and all incredible. that. Incredible. So, yeah. Well, praise God. God's using you. Thank yeah, you, Jim. Thank you. Appreciate you. My honor to be in the conversation. Thanks so much. Hope you're looking forward to uh, the fuller conversation next week. But the one thing I want to hone on, uh, grab onto right now is, is what Jim said at the end. Uh, we can look at all of the cultural uh, issues and frustrations and, and difficulties and complications caused by the, the radical shift in philosophy over the last couple hundred years. But the thing that will be transformed that the church can do is to have that attractive faith like the teacher that um, that drew him to faith by living out the grace-filled truth that we claim to believe, to let the gospel come into our life and let us be the conduit, the recipient of God's blessing, but also the conduit of God's blessing to the world. And uh, very briefly here at the end, I would love to be able to walk us through a passage where, um, to remind us where that blessedness comes from. Uh, in Psalm 1, we get a picture of, of what, of the source of blessedness and how we can be the kinds of people who embrace it, receive it, and pass it on to the world. In addition, it gives us a powerful picture of, of what can happen um, as an alternative. So um, the psalm starts off uh, simply by showing us what the blessed man rejects. What the blessed man rejects. Um, the first thing it says is, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Um, it shows us first that the, bad, the blessed man rejects bad ideas. If you, um, if you absorb yourself and walk in the way of, of, of bad counsel, it will transform you. Who do you follow? Who, who do you mentor? Who do you, uh, who do you pursue? What kind of ideas do you absorb? I guarantee you, if you absorb bad ideas, um, it will transform you in a negative way. In addition, the blessed man doesn't just reject bad uh, ideas. The, the, the blessed man rejects bad actions. The voices you listen to become who you follow. And so if you, if you walk in the counsel of the wicked, you'll find yourself standing in the path of sinners because that's who you will be. And then finally, the blessed man rejects bad company. Okay, rejects bad company. Um, 
You walk in the path of the wicked. You will stand in the, walk in the counsel of the wicked. You will stand in the path of sinners and you will find yourself sitting in the seat of scoffers, mockers, people who see through everything. Who you follow becomes who you identify with. Who you identify with becomes who you are. Hopefully you realize that passage, walking, standing, sitting, that progress is there. You will find yourself stuck. Stuck in a place, I love the fact that, that, that the final destination for the negative person is a, is a place of scoffers. Um, a person who mocks everything, sees through everything, everything's a joke to him. If there was a better, a, a better description, a, a diagnosis of the problem of our culture, it's that, right? Go look at social media, go look at the internet, go look at the news, and, and nobody's actually engaging in intelligent conversation anymore. Everybody's just mocking everything. Everything's a joke. Everything is, you see through everything. Everything is something that, that can be mocked and, 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 and cast aside. This whole culture is sitting in the seat of scoffers. We wonder why we feel so, so bankrupt uh, morally. The psalm goes on, uh, but instead it shows us what the blessed man delights in. The person who experiences the blessing and is a conduit of God's blessing to the world, uh, this is what he delights in. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. He says, uh, the, the blessed man is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. What, how do you get, uh, how do you, uh, what is that stream? The stream is God's word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He's guided by God's word. He's guided by it. He knows it and therefore is trying to live it out. But more than that, he's consumed by God's word. You know, it's okay to start with being guided by knowing the right thing to do and just doing it. Doing the right thing is enough. It's a good starting point. Um, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you, will learn to, if you will start by being guided by God's word, you will eventually find yourself consumed by it. It will transform you. You will hunger for it. It will, it will transform you. It's kind of like um, the spiritual version of exercise. How many of you have just woken up and didn't feel like it and forced yourself to go to the gym or forced yourself uh, to exercise or forced yourself, forced yourself to do something you didn't want to do but knew you should? And then halfway through, you realize, you know, I'm glad I did this. Church is that way too. I guarantee you, uh, being in the company of believers, learning to worship God, if you just put yourself, every, everyone went through that phase in college, you will go through this in freshman. You'll wake up and you will say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like going to church. It'd be hypocritical of me to, uh, to go to church today. And so you tell yourself you're going to worship at Bedside Baptist, right? And, and, and guess what? Put your body where it's supposed to be. Okay, do what you know is right and see if in the process your heart isn't transformed as well. Okay, the blessed man delights. He's guided by God's word, but he's also um, consumed by it. And then he go, that same verse shows what the blessed, he describes all the benefits of planting yourself next to the stream of God's word. Um, it says first, it says first, uh, the blessed man will be fruitful. He is like a tree planted uh, beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. There's two powerful its that you can't overlook. Uh, someone who is planted by the stream of God's word will bring forth its fruit in its season. One of the biggest problems you will experience is comparing your life to somebody else. Okay, when you're frustrated that you're not growing as fast as somebody else or producing the fruit that you thought you were gonna produce, no, you were designed by God uniquely. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that every one of us has been given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. 
which means you have a unique contribution to make. You are a unique tree in God's garden and you will produce your fruit in your season and you shouldn't beat yourself up or compare yourself to other people just because your tree is growing at a different rate. But if you will plant yourself next to this stream, you will, you will be fruitful. Not just that, you will be fulfilled. You will be fulfilled. It says the leaves don't wither. Um, one of the things I love about Kingsland Baptist Church, right, that you are, uh, we are inviting all people to experience true fulfillment in Jesus Christ one home at a time. Fulfillment, this is the only place in the world where you will find true fulfillment. So plant yourself here and see if it, uh, the truth of God's word doesn't come up through the roots and start coming out, coming out your life. Fruitful, fulfilled, it will also make you effective. In whatever he does, he prospers. This doesn't mean you'll be able to accomplish whatever you wanna do. It means everything that God has for you to accomplish, you will be able to do so, not because of your power, but because of the power that's flowing through you out, out of your life into the world. That is who, that is who God will make you if you will take the, the be, be patient and willing to plant yourself next to the stream of his word. But the psalm doesn't end there. The psalm doesn't end there. The psalm ends with an unfortunate picture of the blessed man contrasted with somebody else. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. There's four unfortunate characteristics given in, this, in these final verses. First, it says, if you won't plant yourself next to the stream of God's word, you'll find yourself rootless. You'll find yourself with no roots, disconnected, un, um, un, unsupported. You will find yourself defenseless. You will find yourself in places you never thought you would go, doing things you never thought you would do, and you will have no excuse. You will be peopleless. You won't be able to stand in the, in the assembly. There will be nobody who has your back. And you will be lifeless. I don't know about you, but if, if I just could randomly come up with a description of the biggest plight of our society, I would use those four adjectives. Characterize what's wrong with America. We, people feel rootless. People feel defenseless. People feel peopleless. People feel lifeless. Maybe you feel that way right now. What I love is, a, is, a, is this psalm written almost 3,000 years ago put its finger on the problem of all human society. When you try to live for yourself, you will only ever find heartache and, 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 and frustration, despair, and solitude. But plant yourself next to the stream of God's word. I don't know how this is hitting you today. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you have never experienced the fruit that comes from, uh, from being close to God and drinking in. Maybe you've, you didn't even know you, this is the place to plant yourself. Hear it for the first time. But also maybe the description of fruitfulness, effectiveness, and fulfilled once characterized your life. But really, right now, uh, those other adjectives are how you feel right now. And seniors, uh, there's gonna come a time when you wake up and you're far away from home and you don't know what to do. You feel like you can't do anything right and don't know where to go next. When that happens, where you plant yourself will determine who you grow into. It's never too late to take yourself 
and plant yourself next to the stream of God's word. It's a slow process, but it promises to produce fruit, it promises to make you effective, and it promises to give you the fulfillment that you're seeking in all those other places. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that in the midst of cultural uh, shift and and um, all of the frustrations and, and despair that we see in our society. Thank you that you don't leave us alone. You come into our brokenness. You come into our abandonment. Uh, you, you heal our wounds. You give us grace to help us in time of need. And you show us the way. Father, in all those ways in which we do feel lifeless, show us the ways in which we don't have, we followed bad people, therefore it's produced bad actions, and now we have a bad identity. We're, we're mockers and scoffers, and we, and, we, and we don't have the ability to find the truth you have for us. Father, thank you for the reminder that that if we will just plant ourselves next to the stream of your word and drink in its truth, we will find you in the process and find the life you have for us. Father, Father, remind us of that. Speak Speak that truth into our life. And as we plant ourselves, I pray that you would produce in us effectiveness, produce in us the fruit that we were designed to produce, and may our lives be characterized by true fulfillment. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.